0: Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience, Amateur Hour. Welcome back. So, today I wanted to talk about one of the most fascinating nervous systems out there that of the octopus. Also, uh, I Googled the plural. Um, and apparently octopi, octopuses, and octopodes are all viable plural versions of octopus. <laughs> but a first, a brief refresher on octopus anatomy. They have a big bulbous head with eyes and surprisingly good eyesight, um, and eight tentacles covered in suckers. I don't want to dive too deep into how crazy octopuses are in the first place, but know that their blood is blue, they can fit in the tiniest of places, and they're able to camouflage. But perhaps the craziest thing of all, they have nine brains. Um, they're like tiny little aliens that live on our planet. And when we think about a nervous system, we think about a centralized brain, a centralized command center that sends out messages to move our arms and our legs and our eyes and our tongues, etc. An octopus does have a centralized brain. It's situated right in front of its eyes. But of the 500 million neurons in its body, nearly two-thirds are situated amongst the tentacles. And that means that each arm of an octopus is able to control itself semi-independently from the central brain. An experiment conducted by German Sumbra and others in 2001 titled Control of Octopus Arm Extension by Peripheral Motor Program showed that when a disconnected arm was electrically stimulated, it was able to move in the same basic pattern as when the tentacle was controlled naturally by the octopus. And that means that somehow tentacle movement command signals aren't being sent from the quote-unquote main brain. They're being sent from within the tentacle. And now that makes sense if you think about a tentacle. It's just one giant flexible muscle with like a bajillion degrees of freedom. If you think about your arms or legs, those have limited degrees of freedom. You can only move your arm as far as your shoulder or your elbow will allow you to do so. And with such a complex apparatus, the octopus, uh, brains would have to be enormous to constantly send signals controlling every tiny muscle jerk, etc. But regardless of the fact that tentacles don't seem to need a centralized brain, the octopus does have one, made up of about 180 million neurons. What purpose does it serve? Well, this main brain drives big commands, like when the octopus needs to feed— And in this case, the main brain issues the command, which is, you know, find food, which is sent to the other independent brains in the tentacles. Each tentacle then issues its own commands to move in a specific direction, how much to tense and relax each muscle. Each tentacle gathers information on how things feel and what position it's in, and then guides its movement accordingly. And this all occurs without needing to consult the main brain. But as soon as relevant information like "Mm, yummy snacks uh, is obtained, that's routed to the main brain for large decision making. And that's pretty cool, right? This kind of decentralized nervous system is not very common. We're far more used to a big brain like ours. And I think it kind of brings into question, is something like this potentially more efficient than what we have? Um, I don't know if I can really answer that, but... Kind of a neighboring question is, does it potentially make octopuses incredibly smart? And the answer to that latter question is a definite, resounding yes. Octopuses are crazy smart. Common stories of their intelligence have to do with escaping their tanks at night and stealing things. In some aquariums, octopuses have been known to go to neighboring tanks to hunt for food. In others, these animals have learned how to turn off lights by squirting jets of water at the bulbs and short-circuiting the power supply. At the University of Otago, I hope I pronounced that right, uh, in New Zealand, this game became so expensive that apparently the octopuses needed to be released back into the wild. And beyond physical feats, it turns out that octopuses can recognize and act differently towards different human keepers. In that same New Zealand aquarium, one of the octopuses took a sudden dislike to one of its keepers. And every time that person walked down the walkway, she received a half-gallon jet of water down the back of her neck. So octopuses are able to have some sort of high-level thinking, from recognizing different agents to having feelings of animosity. And I would personally hate to be on an octopus blacklist. But let's go back to that main brain. Another point for the octopuses, our aliens theory, the central brain is very differently arranged than our vertebrate brains. The central brain is composed of 40 interconnected lobes. The higher motor centers in the octopus brain show a different functional organization than the motor cortex of vertebrates. They're not organized somatotopically, which means that different parts of our brain are responsible for different parts of our bodies. In human beings, in our brains, our motor cortex is organized such that we have a little person inside of us. One part of our motor cortex is responsible for movement in our nose, and the part adjacent to that is responsible for movement in our cheeks, and the part adjacent to that is responsible for our lips. Um, I'll post a photo on Instagram if you're having trouble visualizing what I'm talking about. In contrast, stimulating single neurons in the octopus motor center does not activate localized movements, but instead a complex behavior, the complexity of which increases with stimulus intensity. And interestingly, stimulation in the higher motor centers always activates several arms. It doesn't appear possible to only activate one arm, and these results suggest that the higher motor center may contain representations of motor programs, so things like tasks, rather than body parts like our brains. But however dissimilar we are from octopuses, we do appear to share certain traits, such as the cellular mechanisms underlying learning and memory. I found this paper from 2003 where researchers took a brain slice preparation of the vertical lobe, which is a part of the octopus brain that's involved in learning and memory. They took field potential recordings, and these revealed long-term potentiation. Um, Or LTP. LTP is the process of the persistent strengthening of synapses and the connections between neurons that can lead to long-lasting increase of signal transmission between neurons. And this process is kind of canonically understood to be the underlying mechanism of memory. To break it down, let's say we can have something occur. Um, For example, a mouse receives a shock. On the foot every time a blue light goes on in its cage. We know from experimental example that over time the mouse will exhibit fear when the blue light goes on in its cage, even in the absence of the shock. And let's break down this process of learning into its molecular components. In the relevant circuits that mediate this mouse fear light shenanigans, Um, In these circuits, neurons receive a train of repetitive stimulation brought about by these events. And this results in calcium flooding into the postsynaptic cells via N-methyl-D-aspartate or NMDA receptor channels. That's not terribly important to know, but I felt it was prudent to mention. And uh, when this happens, it induces an increase in synaptic strength, which we know as early LTP. And without going too deep into the biological shenanigans at the heart of this process, if we have repeated trains of stimulation like this, this will trigger gene transcription and protein synthesis that brings more channels. Um, This time it's something called AMPA channels. Again, not super relevant, but prudent to know. Um, This brings more uh, AMPA channels to the relevant synapses. And what does that mean, that we have more receptor channels on the postsynaptic cells? That means that if the presynaptic cell fires, there are more receptors on the other side to pick up the signal, meaning that the exactly same size signal now has a bigger effect on the subsequent neuron. And this is called synapse strengthening. And if you're curious about learning and memory in more depth, I have plans to make a podcast episode about it, just completely devoted to this insane and pretty incredible process. But I've also linked some papers in the show notes as a resource to get started. What does that mean about us and octopuses? It means that there's some sort of convergent evolution that has led to the selection of similar activity dependent synaptic processes that mediate complex forms of learning and memory in vertebrates and invertebrates. Given how beautifully different we are, it's fascinating to think about how we still have certain commonalities. It also makes me think that maybe this kind of activity-dependent synaptic plasticity is maybe a very efficient method of encoding memories. Food for thought. And here is some more food for thought. The octopus is said to be a good illustration of the importance of a theoretical movement in psychology known as embodied cognition. Embodied cognition is the idea that the body or the body's interactions with the environment constitute two-cognition. A.k.a. the mind is not only connected to the body, but that the body influences the mind. It poses the question, does our body affect the way we can interact with the world? Or is it our brain just this all-powerful CEO that just guides everything? And in some ways, the body's shape and organization encode information. For example, in order for us to be able to walk the way that we do, we need to have joints and muscles that are able to move our limbs in a way that they need to move. It's more than just our brain sending a command signal saying, go, move. But this idea doesn't fit very well with octopus's state of being. Octopuses don't really have a shape. They're kind of a big ball of muscles with some organs in there somewhere. They don't really have a defined shape like we have joints and limbs. And moreover, they don't even have a brain CEO. Their nervous system is kind of diffused all over their body. And in this way, octopuses live outside the brain-body divide. They don't give a fuck about our petty conversations about embodied cognition. But that is a bite-sized look at the neuroscience of octopuses or octopi or octopodes, whatever floats you wrote. I've cited all my relevant sources and papers in the show notes, and you should keep an eye out on Instagram for some cool figures that I think are pertinent please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please email me at neuroscienceamateurhour at gmail.com or DM me at neuroscienceamateurhour on Instagram. This podcast is available on pretty much any platform I can think of, so please recommend it to your friends and loved ones. And if you're feeling so inclined to financially support my work, please buy me a cup of coffee at buymeacoffee.com neuroscience. Also, if you have something you really want to learn about, please contact me, and you'll probably see an episode about it soon. Happy researching, and I hope to see you again.